Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland, a professor at York University in Toronto. We're continuing in the series Diversity in Early Christianity. And in particular, we're continuing on with a variety of writings that were discovered at Nag Hammadi. These writings are traditionally labeled Gnostic and were often discussed under the rubric of what was considered a movement, Gnosticism. In this course, we've problematized that whole notion and are trying to at least get a sense of not only the commonalities among these writings, but also to take each of these writings in their own terms and understand them in terms of a variety of Christian groups with, nonetheless, some similarities, particularly similarities around the philosophical background, the Platonism that informs their way of expressing following Jesus. Today we look at precisely that, the Middle Platonism that came to influence heavily the way in which many of the authors of the Nag Hammadi documents expressed their view of the world, their view of how the world came to be, in other words, their cosmology. We'll look first at Middle Platonism and outline some of the key characteristics of what we know from the fragmentary evidence that's available about Platonism in the 2nd century CE, contemporary with the Nag Hammadi documents. We then move on to two main writings from Nag Hammadi. First of all, Eugnostus, the Blessed, which does not have any indication of Christian connections. There are no references to Jesus, there are no references to the Christ. Instead, we have a Platonic thinker discussing how that author understands the initial triad in the heavenly realm. We then move on to another document, the Sophia of Jesus Christ, that uses Eugnostus the Blessed as a source and expands upon that expression of the triad. All of this is a way of getting into the Platonic thought of the, some Nagamati documents. This triad notion originates within Middle Platonism. And so in a way, by studying Eugnostus the Blessed and by studying Sophia of Jesus Christ, we're getting a glimpse into two particular authors, Platonic views in the second century that are, have similarities with other Platonic thinkers that have nothing to do with Christianity or Judaism. If you'd like to read more about Middle Platonism, I'd recommend an online article that did inform my discussion here, and that is the article on Middle Platonism by Moore at the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. This scans through the various thinkers in the Middle Platonic period and gives you a sense of how some of these ideas developed and of the fragmentary nature of our evidence for Middle Platonic thinkers generally. I'll warn you again that this is a quite advanced series and that you're better off listening to the earlier series first before you get into this one and that you're definitely better off looking through the documents we're discussing each time before you listen to the podcast. In this case, you want to browse through and give a read through Eugnostus the Blessed and the Sophia of Jesus Christ, both of which are available in the book The Nag Hammadi Library in English. So I hope you enjoy this episode and come again. Plato's thought, especially as it represented in Timaeus, is important for understanding Platonic thought after Plato, but also very important for understanding many of the Nag Hammadi documents, the worldviews represented in the Nag Hammadi documents. Although they're not derived directly from Timaeus, the worldviews we see in the Nag Hammadi writings, at least many of them, and especially in the Sophia of Jesus Christ and Eugnostos, 
reflect thinking that had been going on around the Timaeus among Platonic philosophers. Remember that by the time you get to the mid-2nd century, you're smack dab in the middle of what is known as Middle Platonism. So there's been centuries and centuries of Platonic speculations about the origin of the universe, about cosmology, about how the world works and how the universe works. Platonic thinkers by no means feel a need to stick by what Plato wrote. That's the last thing in the world Platonic thinkers do. Instead, they build upon, change, transform, interact with Plato's writings, including Timaeus, in the way in which they speculate and try and explain the origins of the universe. And so that's what we're trying to get into today a little bit, is get a sense of the Platonic background that is essential to understand the worldview of many of the Nag Hammadi documents. We began to get that a little bit last week when we talked about the Apocryphon of John. Likewise, very heavily influenced by Platonic thought. But today we're going to be more self-conscious about it. Let's move ahead a little bit now that we've got Timaeus back in the 300s BCE. Then you have centuries of development of ideas. Now sadly, for our purposes and people who study philosophy, many of the Platonic philosophers in later centuries' writings did not survive. So we do not have them. Sometimes we have them quoted in other authors. And so it's hard to piece together precisely how Platonic thought developed and how these speculations that we end up finding in the Nag Hammadi writings in the 200 CE, how that all came to be. But there's a long process there that we only catch momentary glimpses of and that we don't really know how all that speculation developed. But let me highlight for you some of the key points in the centuries after Plato especially during the Middle Platonic period from the 2nd century BCE to the 2nd century CE, the Middle Platonism period, let me highlight for you a few developments and ideas among Platonic philosophers that show us where things are headed and help to explain how the Nag Hammadi philosophers think. One is the blending of philosophical speculation and influences. Middle Platonism is not just Platonic thought. Stoic philosophy, Pythagorean philosophy, and Platonic philosophy and philosophers are all interchanging ideas in these centuries. And speculation is developing on the nature of the universe around these blending of ideas that are going on. A lot of the blending of ideas and the speculation center, it seems, in Middle Platonism on the unwritten doctrines of Plato. The unwritten doctrines of Plato center around the Timaeus and on speculating further from the Timaeus. The key teaching that it was attributed to Plato, known as one of the unwritten doctrines of Plato, is precisely the triad. Namely, that you have one, the monad, the good. That lines up more with what is in Timaeus, the creator god. But we know that later in Middle Platonism and in Nag Hammadi writings, it doesn't line up with the creator god. They try and separate that good principle from the creator god. Sometimes that good in these unwritten doctrines is expressed as the mind or the father. The second element is the dyad. Sometimes the language of mother was used in Middle Platonism to express this element of the unwritten doctrines of Plato. And third component in the triad, the creator, the demiurge. We'll see later as these unwritten teachings develop, this gets changed so that the creator gets taken out of the triad let me point out to you a few of the Middle Platonic thinkers, just their names and 
ideas that they introduced, it seems, we don't know for sure, but from the evidence we have that they introduced that are important for the Nag Hammadi writings. Antichus of Ashkelon lives in the first century BCE. We know of him mainly from just quotations from other authors, but one thing that's attributed to him is an emphasis on the concept of ideas being thoughts in the mind of the good. The good has ideas in his head and that those ideas are the models upon which what we see as qualities in our world are based. Albinus is a guy who lives in the first century. He's a platonic thinker again. From the fragments that exist about Albinus, we have him emphasizing a divine triad, slightly different, ex differently expressed than the initial form of it in the unwritten teachings of Plato. He speaks of the triad as first God, also called mind, and good. That would be the equivalent of what in Timaeus was the God who created, right? But there's going to be a different way of understanding that here. Second God, which Albinus talked about as universal intellect. And the third of the triad, world soul. This doesn't become doctrine that everyone else has to follow, does it? These things are all changing and speculation is going on, but it's showing you the direction in which Platonic thought is heading. And it does start to line up more closely with what we're familiar with from the Nagamati writings, right? This triad idea. Another key concept in Albinus that seems to be attributed to him primarily is the idea of hypostatization. Hypostatization is the personification of an idea. So an idea in the mind coming to be expressed as a being. We're very familiar with that from the Apocrypha of John already and from what you read, Sophia of Jesus Christ, for today. This personification of thoughts, which seems to be attributed to Albinus, expressing it more clearly than others before him in the first century CE, is when he's writing. And he had the idea that souls are further emanations from the ideas in the mind of the good. Now, so far, we haven't had a lot of Platonic thinkers speaking of the world as evil in any stark way. However, you do start to get that when you get into the second century CE, where the previously emphasized inferiority of the material realm, that was definitely agreed upon by Plato all the way back from Timaeus, that the material realm is inferior. However, the inclination to speak even more and more negatively about the material realm develops in the centuries after. And by the time you get to Numenius, you can have the material realm spoken of in very negative terms, almost as evil and more in line with what we see in the Nag Hammadi writings. So these are just a few glimpses I've given you of fragmentary evidence we have of what Platonic thinkers were thinking at different points. And it shows you how much variety there is because these are speculations. There's no rules is the way to put it. Just because you're a Platonic thinker doesn't mean you have to obey Plato. It means that you share in common concepts and assumptions of Plato and that you agree that Plato's writings are a source of authority in the sense of you bounce your ideas off of Plato's writings. However, there's plenty of room for speculation and that's what you see reflected also in the Nag Hammadi writings. They're not alone in being second century Platonic thinkers that speculate a whole lot and that come up with a whole lot of new stuff, so to speak. You don't have to agree precisely with what Plato did, said. So what if what you're stating about the nature of the universe doesn't perfectly line up with a passage in Timaeus? So you can think of the Nag Hammadi authors, like the author of Sophia of Jesus Christ and of Eugnostus the Blessed, 
You can think of authors like that as free-thinking platonic philosophers. They share in common many of the assumptions of Plato's actual writings, and especially share in common a lot of the assumptions of the speculation that took place in the centuries after Plato. But they themselves are free with their thinking on it. They don't feel tied down to any particular way of expressing things. Let's talk a little bit about Eugnostus the Blessed. There are debates about the issue of when Eugnostus the Blessed was written and when, therefore, the Sophia of Jesus Christ was written. But what is clear is Eugnostus was used as a source by Sophia of Jesus Christ. Both of these writings were among the writings found at Nag Hammadi. There's debates about when Eugnostus is written, but Eugnostus the Blessed has nothing in it that explicitly refers to anything to do with Christ. And so it's been a bit of a battleground for the issue of where did Gnosticism come from? Because it seems to represent, if you have that category and are trying to figure out the origins of Gnosticism, seems to represent a pre-Christian form of Gnosticism. However, there are some Judean influences that you can detect in it, one of which is just the use of Adam of light. This is at least based in some way on the Hebrew Bible, right? On the Adam figure in the Hebrew Bible. Although the author of the Sophia of Jesus Christ used Eugnostus as a source, there are still differences in details and sometimes in slightly important things in the worldviews of the two authors. Sometimes the author of Sophia of Jesus Christ just takes on verbatim, word for word, what the author finds in Eugnostus. At other times, there's new material added in that gives us a glimpse into that particular author's worldview, including the emphasis on Sophia and on a particular mythology, a story about Sophia that you're familiar with in another form from the Apocryphon of John. And so that's what's distinctive about the Sophia of Jesus Christ compared to its source, is this additional material about Sophia that we'll get into soon. Let's look at Eugnostus the Blessed. As I mentioned, there's some limited influence of Genesis here, especially with the reference to Adam of Light. Other than that, there's no obvious Jewish connection. In other words, you can contrast the author of Eugnostus the Blessed with the author of the Apocryphon of John. The Apocryphon of John is jam-packed full of interpretations of the Hebrew Bible and of the Genesis account, the first six chapters of Genesis. Eugnostus the Blessed, on the other hand, does not extensively interpret the Hebrew Bible. There are allusions, perhaps, but nothing extensive. Eugnostus the Blessed has the triad that we just explained as characteristic of Middle Platonic thought. And that's the whole book of Eugnostus the Blessed is about that triad and the, and the emanations from it. It's presented to us in terms of genre as a letter, isn't it? Eugnostus the Blessed to those who are his. It's a letter. That distinguishes it from the Sophia of Jesus Christ that uses this letter and incorporates it within a different genre. What is the genre of the Sophia of Jesus Christ? It's a gospel, but it's a dialogue gospel, isn't it? And in the letter, he's expressing and explaining his platonic thought, namely his triad. Let's go through the triad briefly here and see what it is. First of all, once you get into the second page of Eugnostus the Blessed, you have he who is. So we have the, the idea of being, being emphasized here. And we have him, immortal, eternal, unbegotten, very important to any Platonic thinker. Being begotten is the equivalent of becoming. Unbegotten is the equivalent of being, right? To go back to those concepts 
that we learn from Plato that are important for understanding Nagamati writings. He is unchanging, good. He is faultless. He is everlasting. He is blessed. He is unknowable. Look at page 226 and on to 227. So we're in the Eugnostus column. Remember that they're parallel columns. Now, if anyone wants to believe the words set down here, let him go from what is hidden to the end of what is visible. And this thought will instruct him how faith in those things that are not visible was found in what is visible. This is a knowledge principle. The Lord of the universe is not rightly called Father, but Forefather. For the Father is the beginning or principle of what is visible. For he is the beginningless Forefather. Being in Platonic thought entails eternal. And that's what's being emphasized here for you in the designation Forefather. He sees himself within himself like a mirror, having appeared in his likeness as Self-Father. We now have the second component in the triad, self-father. He uses the analogy of looking in a mirror, as if looking in a mirror, and that image in the mirror is the self-father. It's the second component in the triad for Eugnostus the Blessed. The self-father is equal age with the one who is before him, but he is not equal to him in power. So it's interesting, this particular Platonic thinker, emphasizes that the second component in the triad is inferior to the first, though eternal with it. The third main element in the triad comes on page 228 of Eugnostus. The first who appeared before the universe in infinity is self-grown, self-constructed father, and is full of shining, ineffable light. In the beginning, he decided to have his likeness become a great power. Immediately the principle of that light appeared as immortal, androgynous man. This particular Platonic writer expresses emanations in terms of light. In this case, well, he also expressed in terms of seeing an image in a mirror, but here it's expressed in terms of light coming forth from the forefather, and that light becomes hypostatized, becomes a being, personified. The immortal androgynous man in the Eugnostus the Blessed then has emanations forth from him, her. So that on page 231, you have the son of man, who is identified with Adam of light, it seems. So it's still on page 232 that you have this further emanation from this immortal androgynous man, emanating this Adam of light, who is also the son of man, who is also the son of God who emanates the Savior. Then Son of Man consented with Sophia, his consort, and revealed a great androgynous light. His masculine name is designated Savior, begetter of all things. His feminine name is designated Sophia, all begetress. Some call her Pistis, faith. Sophia is wisdom, Pistis is faith. You have more elaboration in Eugnostus about these 360 heavens that correspond to the 360 emanations. You then have talk of those emanations creating gods, creating lords, creating archangels, and creating angels on page 238. So there's more of a multiplication. There's an exponential multiplication of the emanations that ultimately derived from that initial triad, that ultimately derived from that initial monad. The one good principle. Let's look at the closing of Eugnostus the Blessed, which is really 
the next main thing that happens after this explanation of all the emanations. Look at the last section on page 239 of Eugnostus the Blessed, which is very important as to why the author of the Sophia of Jesus Christ even bothered to use this as a source. All I have just said to you, I said in the way you might accept, until the one who need not be taught appears among you, and he will speak all these things to you joyously and in pure knowledge. So Eugnostus the Blessed, the author of that document, expressing the nature of how the universe came to be in terms of those the triad, in terms of the emanations from the triad, and saying that what I've just taught you will be taught to you in full by one who is coming, who will bring knowledge, the gnosis. The Sophia of Jesus Christ writing begins with that as the principle, doesn't it? And has the whole document expressed as Christ, the one who is expected to come with the knowledge, sharing this knowledge. Let's move on to Sophia of Jesus Christ. As we mentioned earlier, Sophia of Jesus Christ uses Eugnostus the Blessed as a source, but it puts it into a new context and puts a new spin on it in the process, namely that it becomes a dialogue gospel. Remember, Eugnostus the Blessed is a letter. The author of the Sophia of Jesus Christ presents the teachings from the Eugnostus the Blessed in the form of Christ's teaching, the content of Eugnostus the Blessed. And so that's how it's presented to us. We have various disciples asking questions and then Christ answering it. And then the answers that Christ gives are material from Eugnostus the Blessed. But on top of that, we have some additional material that is not in Eugnostus the Blessed. And we're going to focus our attention on that material because it, it's quite important for understanding the worldview of the author of the Sophia of Jesus Christ. And there'll be some affinities with the Apocryphon of John. We have to be careful, though, in not assuming everything we learn from the Apocryphon of John being the same as what the Sophia of Jesus Christ has. But nonetheless, the figure of Sophia is there, and there are commonalities that we'll be able to identify when we get to that. So for this reason, you have the same triad that we had in Eugnostus the Blessed, you have again now, including the forefather, including the self-father, which is uh, expressed in terms, slightly different terms, in Sophia of Jesus Christ, but with the same basic gist. You have the immortal androgynous man again in the Sophia of Jesus Christ, as you had in Eugnostus the Blessed. But let's look at a little passage there in that third of the triad in the Sophia of Jesus Christ. You have some material you don't have in Eugnostus that will already give hints as to what gets developed later and is specific to the worldview of Sophia of Jesus Christ and not characteristic of Eugnostus. So Matthew asks, Lord, Savior, how was man revealed? Then you have the Savior figure, Christ, explaining the light that appears emanating from the two figures that already exist and that that becomes immortal androgynous man. You then have this phrase here that's going to hint at something that's developed later in the same document. I'm on page 228. Let me read the whole section because it's one long sentence. The perfect Savior said, I want you to know that he who appeared before the universe infinity, self-grown, self-constructed father, being full of shining light and ineffable, in the beginning, when he decided to have his likeness become a great power, immediately the principle of that light appeared as a mortal androgynous man. This is what you don't have in Ignostos. That through that immortal man, they might attain their salvation and awake from forgetfulness. 
through the interpreter who was sent, who is with you until the end of the poverty of the robbers. This talk of robbers is not in Eugnostus the Blessed, is it? But it's repeatedly in the Sophia of Jesus Christ, and we have to figure out what this is referring to. On pages 234 and following of the translation in Robinson, you have substantial material that helps to explain what the poverty of the robbers refers to. And this is actually explaining also Sophia of Jesus Christ's notion on salvation. What is salvation? And how would he express salvation? This is it here. Take a look at page 234 and following. All who come into the world like a drop from the light are sent by him to the world of Almighty, that they might be guarded by him. And the bond of his forgetfulness bound him by the will of Sophia, that the matter might be revealed through it to the whole world in poverty, concerning his arrogance and blindness and the ignorance that he was named. Here you have a figure, the Almighty, who is arrogant, blind, and ignorant. It turns out that the Almighty is here again the God, the Creator God of the Hebrew Bible, isn't it? But here we have again the use of the word poverty. And the author of the Sophia of Jesus Christ, as well as some other authors in the Nag Hammadi collection, traditionally called Gnostics, frequently use the term poverty to describe the material realm. So that earlier when you had the poverty of the robbers, referring to the material realm. Let's go a little bit further down here, because that's where we get explained to us who the robbers are. Here the Savior is speaking. But I came from the places above, by the will of the great light. Referring back to the forefather here. I who escaped from that bond. I have cut off the work of the robbers. I have wakened that drop that was sent from Sophia, that it might bear much fruit through me and be perfected and not again be defective. But he joined through me the great Savior, that his glory might be revealed so that Sophia might also be justified in regard to that defect, that her sons might not again become defective, but might attain honor and glory and go up to their father and know the words of the masculine light. So here we have some more information. We have the robbers again, but not really explained to us. But I'll explain it to you. The robbers in this author's way of talking are the archons who assist the Almighty in creating the material realm. The drops are the elements from the forefather, the drops of light. Remember that the forefather is often represented as light coming forth from him, and that being the way in which he emanates. Well, some of light came forth from him, drops of light came forth from him, and came to inhabit, to some degree, the poverty of the robbers, the material realm. And here we're having an allusion to what salvation is for this author, the return of the drops of light that are in poverty, the material realm, to return to the forefather from which they emanated. This is the question of what is stolen, right, that makes them robbers. Remember that in the Apocryphon of John, now we can't assume the whole worldview of the Apocryphon of John here. However, the talk of Sophia and a lot of the elements of what we're seeing here do line up with what we saw in the Apocryphon of John. The robbery in the Apocryphon of John is to some degree the taking of those drops of light, but not even knowing that they're taken. So it's an ignorant stealing in the Apocryphon of John. So there seems to be a bit of the same thing going on here. The robbery is precisely taking of something that belongs in the spiritual realm and putting it into the poverty, the material realm. But here it's not explained to us in the way it is in the Apocryphon of John. It's taken for granted. 
some mythology is taken for granted. We get a whole lot of the terminology and allusions to all kinds of elements in the story, but the story is never explained to us. The author is assuming his readers, other Platonic believers in Jesus who hold a similar view to him, already know the story of Sophia. But even in what we've read so far, there's more elements that we need to point to that do draw attention to the full story behind the allusions here. Eugnostus the Blessed has a very obscure reference to something and never says anything more about it. And in this way, the defect of femaleness appeared. I would suggest to you, he doesn't have the full story of Sophia in mind, however. What the authors of the Sophia of Jesus Christ does is interpret into this little reference in Eugnostus the whole story he's familiar with about Sophia. But when the author of the Sophia of Jesus Christ read that, he associated that defect with the story of Sophia. In Sophia of Jesus Christ, the defect is the accident that Sophia made in making an emanation that resulted in the Almighty who created the robbers, that resulted in drops of light being trapped within the poverty. Let's go back to 234, 235, and then it goes on in 235. And you were sent by the Son who was sent that you might receive light and remove yourselves from the forgetfulness of the authorities. So you have the authorities, archons, referred to here. And that it might not again come to appearance because of you, namely the unclean rubbing that is from the fearful fire that came from their fleshly part. We already learned from Plato that sensations and the sensible world are inferior to the other world. And we already know from the Apocryphon of John that sometimes Nag Hammadi authors associate sexual activity quite strongly with the passions with inferior things that you need to avoid. This unclean rubbing may well be a reference to sexuality. Let's move ahead to another key passage that unpacks and alludes to a whole lot more elements in the story of Sophia. And it's towards the end of the Sophia of Jesus Christ on pages 239 of following of your translation, where Mary asks the question, Holy Lord, where did your disciples come from and where are they going? This is a standard question for Nag Hammadi authors. Where did we come from and where are we going? It's all about salvation again, right? It's that we came from the perfect spiritual realm and that's the place to which we belong and we're going back to it. Is really what the general answer is going to be. But now we're seeing the intricacies of how this author expresses the answer to that. The Savior says to him, I want you to know that Sophia, the mother of the universe and the consort, desired by herself to bring these to existence without her male. We're now having more allusions to the story that we're familiar with from the Apocryphon of John. Not necessarily the identical story, but the same gist, isn't it? The idea that Sophia made a mistake. The defect of Sophia here in the Sophia of Jesus Christ is emanating without consulting with her consort, the Almighty and the robbers are considered to have come into existence as a result of Sophia emanating without consultation with her consort. And then you have more explanation of the drops of light. I'm in BG 118 now on page 240. The drop of light came down to the lower regions of Almighty in chaos, that their molded forms might appear from that drop. For it is a judgment on him, Archbegetter, who is called Yaldebaoth. Here's something that's in common between the worldview of the Apocryphon of John and 
is Sophia of Jesus Christ. They both use the same title, sometimes, for the Creator God. The favorite one of Sophia of Jesus Christ seems to be Almighty, but here he uses the word Yaltabioth. That drop that came down from the spiritual world revealed their molded forms through the breath as a living soul. We're having more allusions to something we learned from the Apocryphon of John. Namely, that remember that in the Apocryphon of John, the way in which the spiritual realm made a plan to correct the defect, and the plan that the spiritual realm develops to correct the error, is to have the Creator God put into the created human beings elements of the spiritual realm in order to bring back the power that escaped by Sophia's mistake. This is being alluded to here, some form of that similar idea, in the sense that the drops are revealed through the breath as a living soul. You have more references to the world of chaos. You have more references to the robbers here, and that this is somehow a judgment on the robbers. The robbers, remember, for this author, seem to be the rulers, the archons, the assistants to almighty Yeltebeal in creating the material realm. And the judgment on them is reversing the error, namely reversing their existence and having uh, the power return to the spiritual realm. Let's go further on in 241. Now I've taught you about immortal man and have loosed the bonds of the robbers from him. I have broken the gates of the pitiless ones in their presence. So Christ is presented as the Savior who has come to actually bring back those drops of light and thereby correct the defect of Sophia, and thereby do away with the robbers and the Almighty. I have humiliated their malicious intent, and they all have been shamed, and have risen from their ignorance. Because of this, then, I came here, that they might be joined with that spirit and breath. So everything that, by the defect of Sophia, went out from the spiritual realm, returning back to it. Christ is presented as finalizing that return. Bottom of 241 and on to 242. Whoever then knows the Father in pure knowledge will depart to the Father and repose in unbegotten Father. But whoever knows him defectively will depart to the defect and the rest of the eighth heaven. So there's some sort of place to which you return if you do not gain knowledge. If you do not return to the Father, you go elsewhere. Look at the bottom of 242 that, that Christ is that figure that has come so that the drops of light will gain knowledge and return to become one with the light again. I came from first who was sent, that I might reveal to him who is from the beginning. Because of the arrogance of Archbegetter and his angels, since they say about themselves that they are gods. The Creator God saying he's the only God. And I came to remove them from their blindness, that I might tell everyone about the God who is above the universe. Therefore, Tread upon their graves, humiliate their malicious intent. Attributing to the creators of this world malicious intent. They're evil. They're not just inferior. They're malicious. And break their yoke and arouse my own. I have given you authority over all things as sons of light, that you might tread upon their power with your feet. The idea that the, the drops of light have power over their creators. That is similar to the worldview held by the Apocryphon of John. Remember that the, the creator God, Yeltebeoth, and his rulers, the Archons, get upset after they create Adam. 
because Adam comes across as having power they don't have, intelligence they don't have. It's because of that spark, that drop of light in him. And here it's alluding to a similar concept, that those drops of light are really superior to the creator God and to the robbers in this case, the rulers. These are the things blessed Savior said, and he disappeared from them. Then all the disciples were in great ineffable joy in the spirit from that day on. And his disciples began to preach the gospel of God, the eternal and perishable spirit. This is their gospel, right? The Christians who use this document preach this gospel that we've just read. This is the story they believe is the knowledge you need. This is what Christ came to share, the knowledge that will bring salvation for this particular Christian in the second century, the author of the Sophia of Jesus Christ. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>